BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. You and Betty and the Nancys and Bills and Joes and Janes will find in the study of science a richer, more rewarding life. Welcome to Inquiring Minds. I'm Indre Viscontis. This is a podcast that explores the space where science and society collide. We want to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it matters. Over the past many months, and now almost two years, I have to say, Inquiring Minds has been kind of a sanctuary for me, in part because we refuse to cover COVID-19 science. I liked knowing that I could still do my science journalism work. I could still go in-depth into the scientific topics I I loved and take a break from all the pandemic news that's bombarding us all the time. But now that it's been a couple of years almost since we started to learn about this virus, I thought maybe it was time to start looking back and seeing what we might learn as a society from the scientists that have gotten us to this point in the pandemic. So to take us there, I wanted to talk to Brendan Burrell. He's a health science and business journalist, and he's written for The Atlantic and National Geographic, Wired, The New York Times. And he just wrote a book called The First Shots, The Epic Rivalries and Heroic Science Behind the Race to the Coronavirus Vaccine. And I have to say, it reads like a great mystery novel. But there's so much useful information in this book about the origins of the virus, about how these vaccines were developed and what makes them different from other vaccines in our history, and about what that might mean for us in the future. Brendan Burrell, welcome to Inquiring Minds. Hi there. Thanks for having me. So as our listeners will know, we, or I at least, declared Inquiring Minds a COVID-19 free zone at the start of the pandemic. Of course, I thought maybe that would be eight weeks. But a year and a half later, you know, I still kept to that promise. And that was because I wanted our listeners to have a space where they could be sure to listen to science, to, to consume science and take a break from the coverage of the pandemic. You know, I figured they would get that news elsewhere. So, you know, when your book first came across my desk, it was one of these things where I was thinking, "Uh, I don't know if this really quite fits with what I want to talk about. But the more I got into it, the more I realized that this actually is very much Inquiring Minds content. Because you took this approach, for one thing, there's a little bit of distance now um, between 
at least the early parts of, of where you talk about the development of the vaccine. And so we can kind of look on it in terms of, you know, from a scientific perspective, we have a bit more information. There isn't as much speculation as there was early in the pandemic. And it really does impact society. And so at Inquiring Minds, we're really interested in the impact that science can have on society. And here we now have enough of a runway to sort of look at how these decisions by scientists and by politicians impacted our society. So thank you for coming on the show. Well, I'm glad to be here. That is definitely a key theme of the book, understanding how this kind of scientific marvel becomes an, a monetary object for the companies and a political football and, and all of the sort of social context of the vaccine rollout. It's just, it was such an epic thing to be able to write about. So you start the book with, you know, even I guess it's December of 2019 in Wuhan, maybe even a little bit earlier, um, sort of tracking like the first cases and and what was happening. And it reads like a thriller, um, but I know it's nonfiction. So I want to just have our listeners get a sense of your investigative journalistic process. Like, how did you go about getting access to this information? Yeah, I mean, this was a full on deep dive investigation. I you know, this, my goal all along was like, I want this to be completely immersive. I have sort of quotes in the book where you know who the source is exactly, but so much of it, it was, you know, aiming to, to write it as a novel. But I mean, I spoke to 150 or so sources. I built on previous reporting. I mean, this was a year for journalism. And so I can't be more grateful. I mean, that's the beauty of coming in at, at afterwards and seeing how, you know, how all, all, everything that other journalists put together. And yeah, but I mean, I, 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 for the political side of things, it was, it was kind of messy because political reporters depend on a lot of background sourcing. And, and I kind of had to do that to get inside the Trump administration, which is a, a key part of the book. But yeah, I mean, it was everything in there is a fact. And uh, I, I didn't make anything up, though. I made some inferences here and there. So let's start with um, the very beginning. And in fact, it doesn't start with patient zero, um, as one might, might expect. Well, at least in the beginning, I mean, kind of it does. But but you actually start with the story from the perspective of the scientists who want to develop this vaccine. And so tell us a little bit about, you know, why these scientists got such a jump on this vaccine. I mean, we all thought it was going to take years and it took something like eight months. Well, what was going on at the beginning from the science perspective that enabled this to happen? Well, there's there's so much background that went into this vaccine. The story that we've heard, of course, is this: the gene sequence for the virus went online. It was uploaded on January 11th in China, showed up here, you know, time zone difference, January 10th. And there was a huge community of scientists clamoring for this. And they're immediately starting to analyze it in, you know, university laboratories, at companies. And we were kind of lucky that it was a coronavirus because one of the, the big players in the coronavirus vaccine quest is Barney Graham at the National Institutes of Health, who five years earlier had started a coronavirus vaccine project. It was for a different coronavirus, Middle East Respiratory Syndrome. And he had sort of a vaccine design strategy kind of in his back pocket. So from the basic science side of things, we had a head start. And I think the other component that everybody knows this was about was the mRNA vaccines, which are just a faster way of, of developing a vaccine than the old school methods. And so there have been th that technology, we were so lucky to have it maturing right at the moment 
that we needed it. So that, that kind of gave us a little bit of a jump start. So then there are a number of characters in your book that that play major roles. And one of them, I think his name was uh, Bob Cadleck. Is that how you pronounce his name? Cadleck? That's right. Dr. Bob. <laughs> Dr. Bob. <laughs> And, you know, he actually, you have him quoted, uh, you know, a few years earlier as he was sort of tapped by the Trump administration to lead up this one, uh, I think it's called like the ASPR, this one branch of um, sort of the emergency preparedness bit. Um, And you quoted him as basically saying that he thought that they should work on a coronavirus vaccine and or that the the next pandemic might be a coronavirus. Like, how did he know that? And what, you know, why, like, it seems just a little bit, you know, it could have been anything and, you know, maybe, or, or actually was it inevitable that, you know, these last couple, you know, with SARS and MERS, as you just mentioned, like there do seem to have been these mini coronavirus outbreaks. They seem mini now, you know, in comparison, is, is that why, or like what, what would have put that into his mind? Yeah, well, certainly, I mean, Cadillac is a character who he's a a sort of longtime figure on the biosecurity scene. And most of his focus, he has this military background, is in like bioweapons. And so, you know, he's suddenly thrust into a pandemic situation as the head of the the ASPR, as you call it, the ASPR. But but why was he thinking about coronavirus? Well, he was familiar with with all of the major pandemic threats. We had plans for pandemic flu. That's what most scientists were most scared about, avian flu, swine flu, all of that. But then sort of the other diseases we were worried about, of course, Ebola, as we had the incident with a, a few years ago with uh, several Ebola patients having to be evacuated from Africa. And so that that had inspired some vaccine development projects and we had vaccines that were in the works for Ebola. And then sort of the next one kind of in line was the coronavirus. We, you know, there had been activity, uh, major research in that, but there was no licensed vaccine or nobody trying to develop that further. And so I think that's why that was in his mind. Um, so uh, he, he was worried about a lot of things. He is a, a worry wart. <laughs> so it was a little bit of cherry picking that I picked that one quote, but he did say it in October 2019. So there's his push. And it seems like in, in a lot of ways, thank goodness he was at the helm. But we'll get to sort of where it broke down in a minute as well. But at the same time, there were these other characters, like you mentioned Graham, Barney Graham, and these labs uh, that that got these sequences and were working on these mRNA vaccine development. And so uh, can you tell us a little bit about sort of like, why mRNA for a coronavirus? Is this like, is this like where vaccine development is going anyway? Um, So maybe we should start with the science behind an mRNA based vaccine and, you know, why that was so fast compared with the vaccine developments in other viruses. Yeah, well, the I mean, the fast review of vaccine history uh, for virus vaccines is, of course, we used to give, you know, some of our older vaccines are these whole viruses, either it's like an inactivated virus, or it's a weakened virus as in the flu vaccine, where you grow it up in chicken eggs, so it doesn't replicate as well. And, you know, the, the idea for a vaccine, I think, as many people know now, is you're trying to teach your immune system to respond to this, you know, simulation of a threat, so that it'll be ready for the real thing. So you we had these, these old style vaccines. Then we sort of in the 1980s with the rise of kind of molecular biology, we were able to make 
there, there was this idea that, hey, maybe these whole viruses are, are not totally safe. We can get a more targeted type of vaccine. And, and that approach was like the protein subunit vaccine, where you basically take a little piece of a virus um, and you grow it up inside a, in a cell culture in a factory to produce like the, this, the protein, like, you know, the one with the coronavirus, we talk a lot about the coronavirus spike. And indeed, during the, this outbreak, we had people growing the coronavirus spike, companies like Novavax. They were trying to make a vaccine that used just the spike. Well, the problem with that is it's still a very complicated manufacturing process to sterilize it, purify it, and all those sorts of things, because you've got all these little beat bits and pieces of your cell cultures. And we've seen Novavax having trouble convince the FDA that their, their processes are, are, are solid, that they've got their manufacturing down because um, it's tricky. So the beauty of the mRNA is rather than manufacturing your protein outside of, in a factory, you actually just give the body the instructions to make the protein itself. And then it gets displayed on the surface of our cells. So mRNA, it's you know the, the sidekick to our DNA. It's basically every time we need a gene to be expressed, say insulin, we make a, we make a little copy of it in the form of mRNA, which is this little single stranded molecule. And then that goes out into the cell and that's become, you know, that's basically the template for our proteins. So I know this is a, this is a, a long explanation here, but the, the beauty of it is rather than have to make a complicated protein, you're making the exact same molecule every time. It just might be a little bit longer, a little bit shorter, but it's like the same shape. It's like straight. The process is dialed in. And so once you've solved that problem and you've prove to the world that mRNA can work to do disease X, then you can do it for disease Y and disease Z. It gives you a much faster manufacturing process. And people have been dreaming about this for decades. Um, and this 2020 was the year mRNA finally succeeded. You know, and, and it seems like there are a number of things that happen, at least um, the way it's told in your book, in January of 2020, that kind of aligned, the stars aligned. And one of them was the the fact that the Davos conference, um, the World, you know, World Economic Forum happened in January, and there was a chance meeting um, about, you know, of some key players, uh, right around the time as they as people were starting to realize that that maybe this um, coronavirus outbreak in Wuhan was something that was was a real problem. So, and yet, you know, when I, I remember in January, it was sometime in pro- probably late January, maybe early February, I was giving a lecture in my biological psychology class at the University of San Francisco where I teach. And I use COVID-19 as a case study for why we're really bad at thinking about probabilities. <laughs> and I'll never forget this, but I made the point that like your chances of dying from COVID-19 are like far smaller than your chances of like getting the flu and dying from that. Like, boy, was I wrong. Right. Right. Um, but, you know, I think I wasn't alone in assuming that this was going to end up like some of these other coronavirus outbreaks like, you know, SARS or MERS, where the majority of people in the world are not affected by it. So can you walk us back to like what was happening in January with the release of the sequence? Like, is it that every time this kind of genetic sequence of a new virus gets released, you know, you have this flurry of activity in labs and they just don't have as much meaning because they don't turn into a global pandemic or like... You know, why were these scientists like up all night going to Davos, leaving Davos to go back to the lab and work on this? It just seems so prescient. Yeah. So so just to take a step back, I mean, these emerging de- infectious diseases, like you say, they're generally 
they're losers for big pharma. Okay, you you try to test your vaccine in this outbreak, and by the time you you know you're rolling it out, there's nobody to actually buy the thing. And so most of the time, pharmaceutical companies don't pay attention to it. And so that's where kind of government stepped in, universities, scientists, and yeah, there's there's these people like Barney Graham who are like, hey, we got to prepare for these other threats. And so there's all this like sort of chatter happening at a very, you know, at a very grassroots level that, uh, you know, in this case, Graham had been, you know, wanting to run a kind of a fire drill. Like what if another infectious disease breaks out? How quickly can we develop a vaccine? And, you know, while the Mercks and Sanofis of the world were not really wanting to be a part of that, he had a very good relationship with the CEO of Moderna, Stefan Bonsell, who kind of shared that view. Bonsell has been kind of vilified a bit in the media as being a kind of a, a man with a temper and not, not a great boss. And, you know, it had been, there was like a lot of skepticism about his mRNA because he'd been, you know, the company had been around for 10 years without a product. But if there was one thing that Bansell had that was unique about him was he was really convinced that they, the company needed to be going after an emerging infectious disease. So he had inked an agreement with the National Institutes of Health. He said, hey, next time, let, let's do a pandemic test project. And they were originally planning to do something for the Nipah virus, which is a different bat virus. Um, and they were all good to go at the turn of the year when suddenly the coronavirus pops up and Bansell and Barney Graham are trading emails and they're like, let's go for it. So they were doing it. They were running it as a fire drill. And then, like you said, we had this process where people were like, oh, this is not really going to be a big problem. And we get to January and we, you know, people started to see what was going on in Wuhan with the city shutting down, with the flights being cut off and all of that and saying, wow, this, this actually has the potential to go big. I, in my sort of history of COVID-19, I tend to think that the real kind of shift among the sort of the smart people of the world, the disease watchers, there was kind of was, was around the time of the diamond princess in the second and third week of February, when there, this was this cruise ship off the coast of Japan that had an ill passenger, and then it became this just this nightmare that we were watching about, you know, reading about in the newspapers here of, you know, hundreds of people getting infected. And that was kind of a, the realization like, hey, this thing's not going to be bottled up, it's not going to disappear. Yeah, it just made me never want to go on a cruise again. I mean, it was like, the, <laughs> it was like a really bad PR for the cruise industry. And I, and I want to get to the Diamond Princess and talk about what sort of, you know, how that spurred a lot of the other kind of uh, actions that happened. But I also want to give props to someone in Barney Graham's lab who also features heavily um, in your book and in this story. Um, and I don't know how to pronounce her first name. Is it Kismekia Corbett? Uh, yeah, that's right. Okay, so tell us about her. You know, to me, this is such a great part of the story, you know, in part because she seems like the kind of person that a lot of kids can look up to. And, you know, what a great, you know, shining silver lining in the face of this pandemic that's so horrible. So tell us about Kismakio. <laughs> well, yeah, going into this, I will just be completely honest with you, which is I, I knew I was going to write a book about the vaccine race. But I was just kind of frightened about being able to find interesting people and players. I thought, oh, pharmaceutical world, oh, there's gonna, <laughs> it's not going to be super exciting. And then you run into someone like Kizmeki Corbett, who's just this absolute character. I, I don't know if you've seen her Twitter profile. I haven't, but I will now. Yeah. It's, it's Kizzy PhD, and her bio 
is uh, uh, vaccinology, vaginology, and uh, venology. Um, so she's kind of, you know, she's she's a big personality. And she was like the the action hero inside Barney Graham's lab at the beginning of the pandemic. She was the, the lead person on this, this prototype preparedness project and was basically, you know, she had a couple of students working with her, you know, in the early days in January to do all of these animal immunology experiments to basically set the stage for a phase one clinical trial of the Moderna vaccine. So they, you know, they were getting, they were getting hundreds of mice and vaccinating them and then trying to uh, run, develop the assays they needed to make sure they had the right immune response. And then basically, yeah, it was just this massive logistical endeavor. And she's uh, just an amazing scientist. And I think, you know, one of the things that is amazing is, I mean, she, uh, you know, she's, she's a science nerd. She grew up in kind of just this tiny town in North Carolina and, and basically ma- managed to get, you know, grew, she, she described like the, her, her elementary school was surrounded by tobacco fields. And, uh, you know, she reaches the highest ranks of virology by the, you know, while she's in college, she spends a summer in Barney Graham's lab. And he immediately knew that there was, there was something special about her. During the pandemic, she became kind of a, a very important voice, particularly within the Black community, because we all know that like communities of color were disproportionately affected by the coronavirus. And, you know, she, she t- tended to speak out about that. And in one case, you know, th- there had been some, uh, some data released about how, how tragic this was. And she said something on Twitter about, you know, some would call this genocide. And this, you know, actually it catches the attention of, you know, who Fox News host Tucker Carlson and that guy just, he puts her on the news and makes her sort of a target for the right wing and is like, our scientists should be focused on the vaccine. They shouldn't be, you know, offering these weird race theories, blah, blah, blah. And um, she was kind of like pulled out of the media at that time because it was such a hot button issue with everything going on during COVID. And I, I asked her, I was like, hey, how did you deal with all of that? I mean, did it, you know, being in the spotlight in, in such a negative way? And she's just like, She's like, oh, I can handle it. I don't care. I mean, I grew up, there were the members of the KKK marching down my street. <laughs> wow. um, so yeah, she, she's a pretty amazing woman. Yeah, I can't wait to see who uh, plays her in the in the f- TV film film version. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, me too. It'd be great because she's clearly going to be the main character. But you know, I, I sort of you sort of read these descriptions of like her just like living in the lab, not sleeping, like, and it's like, like why <laughs> was this coming down from Barney Graham? Was it like, do you think that it was you know, in talking to her, was she, was it like just just if everybody knew that this was this was the time to do it? But it just seems to me like you've never had an mRNA vaccine that's worked like why did so many people like just drop everything to work on this so fast it was certainly a labor if you if you work in a virus laboratory you're certainly filled with many people who feel like they're uh they're cassandra so to speak um but yeah it was it was a you know it was this part of it was this they wanted to break speed records they were going for the scientific glory you know they wanted to get their papers out it was in the beginnings, it, it, it was just kind of, uh, let's flex our muscles for the sake of science. And because they did that, because they had that incentive, when they were totally ready when it turned out to be a real serious outbreak. So I wouldn't say it was like Barney just telling her, you have to be in the lab. No, I mean, she's motivated to do this. And it was, I mean, it was 
very exciting time. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Start clean with Clorox because Clorox delivers a powerful clean Every time. Because messes happen. Because... Hey, honey, you know your dad's world-famous chili. Yeah, the one that takes 24 hours to make. So I was trying to help out and bring the pot to the table. But it was, like, super hot. And then I, um, dropped it. And now the floor looks all, you know, stained with chili. Look, the point is, you guys cool with pizza for dinner? (laughs) Honey? Ooh, yeah, that happens. So start clean with Clorox. Use Clorox products as directed. I'm on Team Moderna, so I just it to hear yeah. how this all happened. But of course, you know, the other major vaccine, at least in the U.S., um, you know, J&J, we can set aside because it's a totally different vector, was Pfizer-BioNTech. So tell us a little bit about sort of the differences between these two kind of developments of, of the vaccine and and uh, and sort of and and then maybe just also some of the other players like AstraZeneca and like in some ways be, uh, maybe maybe because uh, it's confirmation bias and you know self-preservation I think moderna is the best <laughs> <laughs> um, but you know tell us a little bit about the others too so the Pfizer vaccine the BioNTech vaccine is very very similar it's a coronavirus it produces a coronavirus spike. And uh, like I said, Pfizer kind of sat out the vaccine race like other um, major uh, pharmaceutical manufacturers. It had told BioNTech, which is a very small biotech in Germany, like, no, we're not going to we're not going to do this. We're going to focus on our flu vaccine, (laughs) you know, but then they they come around by the middle of March and they say, oh, we changed our mind. And they decide to sink about two billion dollars into developing that vaccine and beating Moderna, um, which was very exciting. But, you know, one of the things that people are realizing now, you know, the, the initial results of the two vaccines was, hey, they are almost identical, you know, but we've seen the Pfizer vaccine start to wane a little bit more. There's some debate about how meaningful that is, but it is true that the doses are pretty different. The the Moderna vaccine, you get 100 micrograms in every dose. The Pfizer, you only get 30 micrograms and then the spacing of the doses is different. The Moderna one spaced out a little bit more, four weeks compared to three weeks. So it, it might give your immune system longer to respond and you get a bigger jolt uh, with each shot. You know, I, 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 ha- I wrote a little article about this for The Atlantic. I think both companies were going through their process very fast and they were making good decisions, um, but they kind of ended up in very different paths. I think we can, we can hypothetically uh, you know, probably a 50 microgram dose would have been perfect. And people, some people with Moderna get, you know, serious reactions, um, which isn't a good thing. And Moderna's, of course, asked for the, the half dose for its booster shots. But yeah, so those, those were the, the two big mRNA players. Then we've got like 
you know, the AstraZeneca, which was the great hope, uh, <laughs> uh, which has, yeah, I mean, it was a, it was a, there was some mixed messaging there. I don't think it hasn't been approved in the U S and, you know, but I think around the world, it, it has had a pretty significant impact on COVID numbers. So when you hear about these different protocols, it seems a little bit arbitrary. Like, why did Moderna go with 100 micrograms and four weeks apart and Pfizer went with 33 weeks apart? And, you know, like, was there time for them to try out a bunch of different protocols and find the best one? Or was it like, okay, we have to, you know, we have to do a bunch of back of the envelope calculating and then just, you know, take a shot and like, see if it's effective? It was informed guesswork. Okay. So the process is that, you know, when, when Moderna first went into its phase one clinical trials, these are the small safety trials uh, that began on March 16th of 2020. They give uh, people the lowest dose that they, they might think might work, 25 micrograms. And then, you know, those, those first people you call the sentinels. Um, and then gradually they start to sort of go to higher and higher doses um, and this is sort of the, the process of finding the optimal dose. So they go up to 250 micrograms, 10 times the lowest dose. And people were just knocked out with their second dose. I talk about this guy who, you know, wakes up in the middle of the night, just sweating with this pounding headache and he goes to the emergency room. So Moderna's like, we aren't going to do 250 micrograms. But what doses did they have? They had done 25 and they'd done 100. And at that point, they did sort of have an inkling like, okay, 25 might be too low. Sort of our past data suggests the antibodies might wane. They had some data from flu vaccines, but is 100 micrograms too high? Well, we gotta, we'll have to run another trial to figure out if 50 micrograms is good enough. And they're in the middle of the vaccine race. The pandemic is pressing, but they, they start to run this, this study with 50 micrograms and 100 micrograms. This was their phase, what we call a phase two trial. So this is a larger trial, more people trying to really hone in the dose. My understanding, and this, uh, I'm not 100% certain on this, but my understanding is they did not have as much data from 50 micrograms at that point. So they decided that the safe bet was to go with a 100 microgram dose because it looked good. And that's what they went forward with in their phase three clinical trial. Um, they knew it was safe. They knew it was effective. So they went that route. Pfizer kind of got scared away from a higher dose earlier on. And the story is they had they were testing multiple candidates at once. Not only were they testing the coronavirus spike, they were testing a smaller piece of the coronavirus, just called the receptor binding domain. And that's what you call like, it proved to be like a hotter vaccine. And that's like when people have really strong reactions to it. And so that was the first candidate they started uh, testing. And when they saw that these strong reactions, they decided they need to stick with lower dosing. And so when they went and tested the full spike, they actually ended up only going up to 30 micrograms. And they were, you know, they were again in a race, they were facing the pandemic and they decided, well, 30 micrograms looks pretty good. Let's go forward with it. So, you know, yeah, could they have gone a little bit higher? Maybe, but it would have taken them a few weeks uh, to get all that data. So... Now we kind of get a sense of like, what are some of the issues that the manufacturers or the, you know, the, the, the scientists behind making the vaccine were facing. Um, at the same time, of course, there was this whole political thing happening. And, you know, a big part of your book is also kind of describing what's happening 
in the Oval Office and nearby. There's so much information here. But if there were kind of like one or two moments where you felt like there were decisions that were being made that really altered the course of what's ha- what happens, like for one of them, you know, like chapter nine is called the president's powwow. And, and you sort of describe this meeting with uh, Stefan Bansell of Moderna and the person from Pfizer. Sorry, I can't remember their name. <laughs> uh-huh. Michael Bilston. Oh, there we go. Thank you. Uh, yeah, see, I'm actually about to get my Pfizer booster because uh, I'm going to mix and match today. So <laughs> I guess I'll learn his name. But yeah, so tell us a little bit about sort of like what was happening in terms of the the sort of political or business development side that was influencing and, and, and sort of what, what play did that have? Like, I, mean, I imagine you've got these big pharma companies, you've got the scientists. I mean, like, what do they need the government for at this point? And what did the government do to help or hinder the development of the vaccine? Let's, let's not worry about the rollout for the moment. The companies were still not moving that fast. Moderna, for instance, I mean, it phase one clinical trial was part of their plans from the beginning. It doesn't take that much money. Um, it was a few million dollars uh, and that they had thanks to an organization in Norway. And But they needed bigger, they needed greater funding if they wanted to ramp up their manufacturing. You know, they had never manufactured a vaccine at scale. They needed more funding, you know, $500 million to run a phase three clinical trial. They didn't have that. And companies tend to, you know, that's the whole thing about the speed at which vaccines are developed is a companies are cautious. They need to be financially conservative. So they're going to get the, you know, do a, a study. They get a little bit of data. They analyze it. They decide, okay, we're going to move forward. All right, we're going to move forward. And they, it's just step by step by step, you know, looking for anything that could throw the, their vaccine candidate off. So in this case, that's what was going on is these, these companies we're not expecting, you know, they didn't know where they were going to get the funding from to scale up, with the exception of Pfizer. And Moderna is a big biotech, but there were other smaller biotechs that were also sort of in this process, like Novavax, which had very little cash, and other players. So there was a sense in April that there needed to be concerted investment from the government if we were going to get this vaccine by the end of the year. Um, and that is, of course, Operation Warp Speed. Operation Warp Speed. So tell us, give us a, a sense of like what happened. Who, where did the money go? And yeah, tell us the next step in the story. So Operation Warp Speed uh, is uh, a, a program that's most closely associated with uh, President Trump. But as I sort of explain in the book, you know, it was a an upswelling from sort of these longtime experts uh, like Bob Cadlick and the Asper, who was working closely with a guy in the FDA, Peter Marks, with the recognition that, hey, actually, you know, even though people are saying it's crazy to get a vaccine by the end of the year, we think we can do it. And it's going to take two things. Number one, we want to pre-manufacture vaccines before they are proven safe and effective. So we want to start stockpiling this stuff. And hey, if the if the clinical trials fail, we'll just end up throwing it away. Big deal. I mean, half a billion, billion dollars to the government, it really isn't that much in the grand scheme of things. Second thing that became a big part of Warp Speed was they were going to select sort of the leading candidates, and then they were going to work closely with the companies that were funded to plan and carry out their clinical trials in a way that would ensure that they would be most useful to the American people. Um, So Warp Speed ends up coming together. It's launched, uh, announced publicly on, on May 14th. And uh, over the next month or so, 
there's sort of six final candidates. We had Moderna, we had Novavax, we had uh, AstraZeneca, Johnson and Johnson, and then Sanofi, and a little bit later Merck. And we know that Sanofi's vaccine kind of petered out. Merck dropped its vaccine candidate. AstraZeneca <laughs> uh, had some issues too. So, so we kind of were left with three out of the six candidates, which is pretty good. So AstraZeneca was because of the blood, blood clotting issue. Is that what you, you know, sort of what, why we think of it as less successful? I mean, that's the whole thing is people say, well, was this a vaccine race? Is it fair to call it a race? And it, yeah, it was because the, the companies that got there first, they dominated the market. Pfizer has the biggest market share, then Moderna, and J&J has the tiniest liver. And why did AstraZeneca get just knocked to the point that it's not even seeking approval? Well, you know, there were all these sort of complications with the trials that they had run in the UK, which the FDA was not totally cool with, like, because there's just kind of different rules over here versus over there, different types of data they wanted to see. And what happened was that the trials were initially run by the University of Oxford, and then AstraZeneca kind of took up the scaling up, and AstraZeneca had the contract with Operation Warp Speed. And there were just these delays related to how the, the data was being shared and 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 so on that kind of led to a, a distrust between warp speed, between FDA and, and AstraZeneca and the University of Oxford. And then when that tr- there was basically this transverse uh, myelitis, I want to say the, the viral infection that somebody got in September, which put a halt to the trial. And the trial halted in England. There was a simultaneous trial in England, but the company did not tell the US FDA that was happening. They found out through other means, through the media. So that just, that was a big deal. And so the FDA halts the trial here for like a month and they ultimately let it go forward. But now the company is way delayed. Um, And then later on, when sort of the clinical trial results were released, there was just a lot of kind of miscommunication. AstraZeneca was saying, oh yeah, our our vaccine's 90% effective, just like Pfizer and Moderna. And it was like, no, that's not really true. It was like 90% effective within the subgroup that was you know, mostly white people in England or something. I can't remember. (laughs) So it's just like, it just, it's just not the way you want to roll out a vaccine. And then they get hit with the final whopper, which is that the vaccine, AstraZeneca's vaccine was being made in this facility run by this company called Emergent Biosolutions in Maryland. And that company ended up with this contamination issue. And so it just, compounded all these errors. And that's kind of knocked AstraZeneca out of the game. So, I mean, it's kind of amazing that we went from like, you know, AstraZeneca was being put in shots. My my mom got AstraZeneca in Canada to like, it's not even in the game anymore. And, And like, there's still a world of people that don't have access to vaccines. So like, what's going on now in terms of are, are Moderna and Pfizer and, you know, J&J just like, do they have the bandwidth to make enough to vaccinate the world? Or like, what's going on now? I mean, the same problems that affect AstraZeneca affected Johnson Johnson to some degree, because they're in the same facility, the Emergent Biosolutions. And then they got hit with this, with this problem with these blood clots, which gave them a lot of pet press. But I mean, I would say, I mean, both the Johnson and Johnson vaccine and the AstraZeneca vaccine, they're good vaccines and they're just a lot cheaper than the mRNA. mRNA is like $20 to $30 a dose. Those vaccines, AstraZeneca was only going to be $3 or $4 a dose, J&J, $10 a dose. So they definitely have the potential to be more widespread 
vaccines globally. They don't need this ultra cold refrigeration that the mRNA needs. And then the big hope for many countries is these protein-based vaccines, this old school method I, I sort of explained, uh, like the Novavax vaccine. And when, once that is ironed out, those vaccines sort of have the same benefits. Um, and so I think we're looking at, you know, we've had this drought and supply globally is going to kind of be over, you know, next year, there's, you know, expectations of several billion doses of vaccines. So yeah, some poor countries have had to wait much longer than we did. But I think, you know, the story for next year is kind of diversity of vaccines. So I want to remind our listeners that um, Brennan Borrell's book, The Epic Rivalries and Heroic Science Behind the Race to the Coronavirus Vaccine, it's called The First Shots, that's sort of the subtitle, uh, is available at booksellers everywhere. And it really does read like a thriller. But of course, you know a lot of the characters <laughs> um, almost too well. Um, so now we're in 2021. We have a new president. We presumably have learned a lot, but what do you see as like, where are we now and where are we going in terms of our pandemic response preparation? Like who are the main players that that are going to lead this next effort? And and yeah, what what is your outlook? The coronavirus threat is definitely, you know, it, we we hear different news every day, right? Is what's going to happen with the variant is a story that many people are following and are concerned about we actually have an immune evading variant, then it's going to put a huge wrench in things. But I think that the bigger story here is that there are these other viruses that are still emerging, you know, potential threats. And have we reformed kind of the overall way that we've, that we're going to respond to something like that? Um, Barney Graham at the NIH, he's talked about the fact that there are about 25 different virus families um, and we have licensed vaccines for 12 of them. So we need to be doing like the basic research to be preparing and have kind of prototype vaccines for the other 13. And so I think that that's a, that's a really high priority. We were lucky that it, this was coronavirus. What if it was Nipah? Like he, that, that would be a big problem. And so, so the basic research has to happen. And then I think, you know, one of the big lessons of the pandemic was the, the failing of the supply chain and how important it is that more of our medical supplies like masks and uh, other PPE and other basic things are being manufactured here uh, within the country. And there needs to be sort of sustainable funding for that. And then I think finally, the, the overall um, kind of chain of command of how do all of these health agencies work together? How do they work with the White House? That is still a work in progress, as we saw under around some of the debate around the booster shots. And there was this mixed messaging between the FDA, the CDC, and the White House, where they were kind of uh, at loggerheads at that and led, led to resignations from the FDA, which sort of felt like something you, you remember from the Trump era with you know political interference of science and everything. But here it is happening under the Biden administration to some degree. I think I'm, I'm sort of drawing a parallel here, but I, I mean, I want to be clear, it's a very different situation. I actually am one of these people that kind of believes that it's it that policymakers and politicians, you know, they need to be informed by the science, but they 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 have the the right and the the part of their job is to make decisions mm-hmm. um, based on on other other aspects of you know besides science. 
Yeah, I mean, you you write at the very end of your book, you know, another pandemic is not likely, but neither was this one, which is to me, is this, it seems like a very clear headed, but surprising thing, because it seems like so much of the journalism we read was that this pandemic was inevitable, that, you know, it was like, absolutely going to happen at some point, And, you know, this, that and the other thing. And yeah, I, I mean, I guess like, you know, there there are other reasons to worry about biological threats, as you point out, like a deadly fungus or drug-resistant bacteria. There are plenty of things to worry about. But how do you attribute the importance of the preparedness, the response, and 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 what the government should be doing? Like, did we is is this our next our, our last once in a century pandemic? Do you think, or like, you know, should we be prepared for this to happen, just like global warming? wildfires are more frequent. <laughs> well, I don't want to be the guy on record saying this is our last <laughs> pandemic. We're all good, you know? Um, yeah, I mean, it's like uh, these these very low likelihood events, like say an asteroid hitting the earth or something. It's like, how much money do you want to devote to protecting that, us from that? It would be cause a huge amount of damage, but it's probably not going to happen. And so I think you have to make you know, these smaller investments along the way so that we have, you know, a pathway to a vaccine against some random virus. That's important to kind of do the groundwork. That's not a huge investment. I mean, and overall, just like, yeah, some of the basic things, we lessons we learned from this one, like that masks work. <laughs> it's, I mean, these are going to go a long way if we can figure out the sociology of the country, which is a huge challenge. But yeah, I think this pandemic was a you know, saying saying that is inevitable. Gosh, I mean, yeah, it was inevitable at some point in a very long time period. It's got to be on our radar. But you know, there are some people who said, you know, I think we're now over indexed for pandemic threats. I mean, what if it actually next time it's a, a biological weapon rather than a um, potentially, you know, and this is a matter of debate about where the coronavirus came from. But what if it was like an anthrax attack or something like that? Do because going back to Bob Cadlick, he's been criticized for the amount of money he spent buying these anthrax vaccines. But you know, it could very easily we could very easily have an anthrax attack as well. Well, Brendan, thank you so much for being on Inquiring Minds. Thanks a lot for having me. So that's it for another episode. Thanks for listening, and if you want to hear more, don't forget to subscribe. If you'd like to get an ad-free version of this show, consider supporting us at patreon.com slash inquiringminds. I want to especially thank David Noel, Herring Chang, Sean Johnson, Jordan Miller, Kyle Raihala, Michael Galgool, Eric Clark, Yushi Lin, Clark Lindgren, Joel, Stefan Meyer Awald, Dale LeMaster, and Charles Blyle. This episode was edited by Daniel Link. I'm your host, Indre Viscontis. See you next time. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.